0: recent Hidden Forces podcast with Dimitri Kofinas featured Professor Kevin Vallier and his new book, Trust in a Polarized Age. Vallier notes that Americans are less trusting than at any point since at least the 1960s. The timing is no surprise to any that read William Strauss and Neil Howes The Fourth Turning. The American High, a period of confidence during which the society felt it could accomplish anything, ended with President Kennedy's assassination. That phenomenon, that lack of trust, that lack of confidence, can be observed even in the University of Michigan survey of consumers. During the 1950s, expectations about the future always ran ahead of the contemporary condition, and optimism, whether the present was good or bad, that it would be even better soon. but at the end of the 1960s and ever since, expectations are always worse than the present. If we use confidence in democracy as a proxy for trust, that phenomenon is not solely American. A University of Cambridge project that includes four million people covering 154 countries and combines over 25 international surveys show 2019 to have been the highest level of democratic discontent on record surely 2020 will rank even worse when the results are finally published a more granular survey by gallup has been conducted in the united states since the early 1970s and focuses on public and private institutions citizens are asked how much confidence they have in organized religion the supreme court congress organized labor big business public schools newspapers the military almost at the very bottom are news organizations the only institution in which the public consistently has less confidence in is Congress, which they recently attempted to burn down. The financial media is no exception, as Jeff Snyder often makes clear in his writings. But just as Vallier expressed hope with Cafinas that trust can be rebuilt, and just as Strauss and Howe conveyed confidence that institutional strength is cyclical and will return, so here, In episode 42, does Snyder note that the minority of financial press attempting to bring truth to power is growing. The mainstream media believes that
1: central banks are central. But we recently saw something in the Wall Street Journal where an opinion column suggested the opposite. That maybe not that they're doing it wrong. But that maybe they don't know what they're doing. And I'm referring to an article on, let's see, what day was it? January 3rd in the Wall Street Journal is an opinion column by Andy Kessler. And it quoted four times Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, how did it happen? How did this, how did this go? Uh, look, tell us what happened. How did Andy reach out to you, Mr. Kessler?
2: Well, I talk to people in the media all the time. You know, I know, I'm very harsh on them, but there's there's quite a few of them who are open-minded and honest, and really are interested in getting at the truth. And they can be evidence-based. Yes, they have their biases. A lot of them come through economic schools and mainstream mainstream process and things like that. But there are and occasionally some some reporters and some people in the mainstream media, as I said, who really are interested in the facts and really are interested as the, the overused term holding truth to power. They really are trying to say, look, you know, this isn't working out the way that we keep saying it is. And you know what, damn it, I'm kind of embarrassed that I'm going along with it. I think we need to start looking at things more objectively and taking them into detail and not just taking the word of these officials that we have just taken the word of and taken for granted for so very long. And it's really, you know. The mainstream media, and you can understand why this is, I mean, in complicated and complex technical topics, things like we're going to talk about the repo market, nobody really knows about it. So where, I mean, if you're, if you're investigating something like that, where are you going to get your information? Where are you going to get your trusted information? Well, we've been told for generations that you go to a central banker because they know money. They know how the financial system works. And so if a central bank official says, this is what happens, who are you to challenge it? Well, the only reason you would is if what the central banker says in reality ends up being are two very different things, then you, that's when you should start asking hard questions. And there are people out there who are doing so. And from my you know, uh, minimal vantage point, I can tell you there are more out there these days asking the right questions than
1: there have ever been. I often get interviewed by the press as well, but they always ask me to be an unnamed source. and. Anonymous. So a lot of those quotes belong to me, but you know, it's never attributed to me, but you were attributed here four times, as I said. And the column, by the way, that we're referring to everyone is called How the Fed Stifles Lending. And again, January 3rd, Wall Street Journal, Andy Kessler. Uh, that's the headline. The drop head in newspaper terms is quantitative easing hoovers up bonds, leaving less collateral for eager borrowers. Here's how it starts out, quote, Dear Jerome Powell, end quantitative easing now. Wow, the Japanese tried QE in 2001, buying government debt, mortgage securities, and even stocks. It didn't work. The Federal Reserve has tried it four times since Lehman Brothers went belly up in 2008. QE doesn't work, and instead of keeping markets stable, it creates instability. That's all, Mr. Kessler. How hard was it to uh, convince Andy of your thesis, or was he amenable?
2: No, he's been on the, you know, kind of a skeptical crowd for many years, and I think what happened, and I don't want to speak for him, but I think what it was is he had these thoughts, and he had these these impulses, and these ideas, And he didn't have, as we keep saying around here, he didn't have the framework or the reference points to understand what he was seeing. He could tell there was something wrong. And he had mentioned um, the collateral system going back to some of his columns, you know, way back when. So, I mean, he had this idea that, look, this QE stuff, it doesn't seem to be what everybody says it is. And oh, by the way, as he wrote in in his introduction, this stuff doesn't work. It doesn't do what central bankers say it does. And so now he's asking the question, why? What is going on here? And that's really all. That's really what we want is we want the media to to say, okay, report the facts and report what's going on, not just not just repeat or become a stenographer for what any central banker says they want you to know. And that's what you know. That's what drove him to contact me to say, look, can you give me some more information, more background, some more detail about what really goes on in these these positions. And that's really where we kind of worked together a little bit last year and then revisited the topic this year. Of course, because in between between you know the repo market uh, disruptions in September of 2019 and March 2020, what was the Federal Reserve doing? As we've talked about many times here, they were buying T-bills and they were buying exclusively T-bills, which was the exact worst thing they could possibly have done. And so it was sort of a For people who are just arriving at this realization and thinking, okay, there's this collateral thing, what does QE actually do? What happened last year and up until March was sort of a proof of concept. We're testing the theory. Is the Federal Reserve making it worse? As you could tell from what happened during March of 2020, yeah, they did. They screwed up the repo market system on the collateral side.
1: Let's continue with the article. Kessler continues here. The Fed supervises and regulates U.S. banks. But traditional banking, think Mr. Potter from It's Wonderful Life, represents only 15% of all lending, maybe less. The rest is the mysterious-sounding shadow banking system. Now, I do not believe that 15% is correct, and let me cite a Bank of England report. Quote, this is a Bank of England report from 2014. Of the two types of broad money, bank deposits make up the vast majority, 97% the amount of currently in circulation as of December 2013. And in the modern economy, those bank deposits are mostly created by commercial banks themselves. Jeff, am I maybe mislabeling or conflating lending and money creation? Or is the 15% actually much, much less when it comes to traditional banking? No, I think what
2: what Kessler is citing is the idea that the traditional depository model, mm-hmm. you know, the, the mom and pop bank on the corner, the savings and loan, or the trust business, those are a product of a bygone era. And that bygone era isn't you know two thousand five. The bygone era is nineteen forty. I mean, <laughs> let's face it. As as we talk about, when, especially in Euro Dollar University, the banking, the the monetary transformation into Euro Dollars and wholesale money was also a parallel banking transformation into what, you know, today, some people call shadow banking, it's the same kind of the wholesale bank model, whatever you want to call it. You know, I just wrote another article, but they called it in the 70s, liabilities management. I mean, there was any number of uh, names and terms for it. What it really is, is that the banking system, the monetary system changed out of the, uh, you know the the mom and pop local corner that you know the, the bank where they they bring in you bring in cash depositors bring in cash there's a vault there's money in it there's fractional reserve lending that takes place all that kind of stuff that's that's all anachronistic it's uh, the real modern system is this wholesale shadow money system that spans the entire globe and there you know if you go back to the economics textbook and what we're all taught from day one. There's hardly anything about these things in it. And so, not only are we unprepared for what the system actually is, but so are, as, as astounding as it may seem, um, officials, central bankers, bank regulators, they're unprepared for the real
1: world, too. Let us continue with the article Quote, sometimes lenders repledge the collateral to other lenders and take out repo loans of their own. So I skipped ahead a little bit. Now we're discussing the repurchase agreement market, which we often have on this show. And the cycle goes on. It's a little bit like a hot potato, passing the collateral to the next guy, known as rehypothecation. These transfers used to be one done once or twice for each hosted asset, but are now sometimes done six to eight times, each time creating new money supply. Note. This modern money creation outside the purview of the Federal Reserve, and it's huge. Jeff, that's six to eight times. That sounds like it's a reference to Manomahan Singh, and he's the uh, academic that works for the IMF, and he's, that makes him the rare kind of bird that is interested in money creation, collateral, in the shadows, while also being at a prestigious prestigious, um, institution is, is that what we're talking about here? The six to eight times, is that where that number comes from? That specific
2: number actually came from surprise, surprise, the federal reserve. Hmm. Believe it or not, the federal reserve has conducted at least some staff economists at the federal reserve have conducted research into and repledging. And what the, 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 uh, studies that I forwarded to Andy, so he could verify the data that's what they said, uh, the collateral, I think back when, when the original study was done in 2018 was about seven. Uh, I think I've seen them as high as eight with Manuman Singh, but that specific, specific study was seven. They said more recently might've been, the repo multiplier might be down to six. So, I mean, we don't really know. And that's kind of the point here, right? Why don't we know? Why don't we know what's going on in the collateral side of the system? That should be front and center for every bit of monetary policy. And that's really, I think the, the subtext behind uh, Kessler's article was like, look, you know, you're doing this QE stuff based on what, where's this coming from? It's obviously not working. And the more you dig, you dig into it, what you find is that you guys don't even know what the hell you're talking about. And if you don't know what you're talking about, why don't we know what we do? Why don't, why haven't you fixed that? Why haven't we done anything about this? You know, it's really, why would you wallow around in darkness and ignorance for year after year after year, decade after decade after decade? There's something really wrong with that.
1: Ideology. Jeff, uh, Manomahan, I can't pronounce that name, Mr. Singh, he was interviewed on Real Vision on uh, December 14th. It was an interview conducted by Caitlin Long, and they talked about repledging. Of course, they got around to it. And Singh reiterated the six to eight times. But get this, Caitlin brought up the fact that in a conversation she had with Raul Paul, the CEO of Real Vision, uh, and he was talking about his days when he was at the trading desk, he said that that six to eight, that's just the quarter end number that's posted. Intra quarter, he mentioned a number of 30 times each U.S. Treasury security, the average U.S. Treasury security Repledged, rehypothecated 30 times of course we don't know as you just said we don't know but that was his sense
2: can you imagine Well, is anybody really shocked by that i think that when you i didn't know that number because i never heard that that uh, that that uh, interview that you're citing and so but you you saying 30 times that doesn't shock me at all it doesn't surprise me at all because i mean look we know what the banking system does i mean lehman brothers repo 105 they jigger around with the numbers especially intra quarter it's part of the process, it's part of what they do. It's all about creating leverage where, where it's uh, applicable, where you can get away with it. So you would think, again, going back to our, our point here, you would think that authorities and uh, you know, regulators at the very least, whose mandate is to regulate banks would be interested in this. And this. We wouldn't have to have these kinds of, well, what is really going on here? I mean, we had no idea. And even Manaman Singh's uh, estimates, I mean, he's been really good about going into trying to find out where's the source of the collateral. I've referred to him many times before. You know, is it the securities lending businesses? Is it, you know, where's this collateral? Is it hedge funds pl- pledging? Not just the multiplier, but also the source of collateral. And what you notice is that his estimates are all usually round numbers. And you think round numbers are guesses. They're not yeah. real estimates. And this is not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not um, denigrating his work. What I'm saying is that he doesn't have the tool. I mean, this is a guy from, you know, a high profile guy at the right, right places who doesn't have the tools to look inside the collateral system. And this is 2021, you know, why don't we know more about the repo, the collateral side of repo? That's really the thing here. And I think that I I love the fact that Andy Kessler was pulling no punches to say, look, we need to take, we need to look at this stuff. It's very important. And I think as we have discussed before, and I think it was our, maybe our last podcast or a couple before that one. Um, talk about in Europe, how they're looking at securities financing transactions, these SFTs, which are repo plus other things, including derivatives. And even in Europe, where they're actually investigating these things, it's, it's being conducted at a very, you know, it is a snail's pace. You know, they started talking about, hey, we need to look at collateralization and securities financing transactions in 2011, 12, and 13. And here it is in 2020, now 2021. And they're only just starting to pilot some programs. And, you you know, why, why is, why, why is nobody really taking this seriously? And that's, that's really the question I think people need to ask themselves.
1: In the interview, the Real Vision interview that I cited, uh, that came across the difficulty of getting this information, even for a a respectable, well-known academic at the International Monetary Fund. He
2: has all sorts of, you know, confidential data sources that we could only dream of. I mean, he has the ability to, to say, hey, look, knock on your door. We need to find some information. I mean, he could go to a bank regulator and say, this is important, and probably get the bank regulator to say, we need this information. And so, yeah, I mean, why don't we have more information? Why is this stuff still in the shadows? That's really – and to answer that question, if anybody doesn't have an answer readily available, because once you realize this stuff is in the shadows, the entire central bank model as it exists today is completely obsolete. They're out
1: of business. It's that simple. Let's continue with Mr. Kessler. Quote, that was the scramble for good collateral. But wait, U.S. government debt was 24 trillion in March. Why weren't there enough treasuries around to buy? Because you guessed it, the Fed has been gobbling them up 80 billion a month for quantitative easing. Mr. Snyder explains, that's you, Jeff. Quote, low interest rates were not from the Fed's buying bonds. Let me read that again. You said, "Quote: Low interest rates were not from the Fed's buying bonds, but from the stripping the mar- but from stripping the market of good collateral." English very difficult for me, Jeff. Help the audience understand what I was trying to read.
2: Yeah, just what we've been saying, especially about T bills in twenty nineteen, early twenty twenty, when the Fed buys bonds. Because look. What is that central bank model which is obsolete? The central bank model is, in the quantitative easing era, bank reserves. It's a quantity of bank reserves. And so what they think is monetary policy is driven by raising the level of bank reserves. But in order to raise the level of bank reserves, you have to buy an asset from the banking system. Now, most people equate this to money printing because bank reserves sound like money. They're talked about like they're money and all this other stuff. So it really is... Okay, so we have to raise the level of bank reserves, but what are bank reserves? Nobody ever stops and asks themselves what that's question it 's assumed it's money when it 's really not in the context of you have to buy an asset to raise the level of bank reserves you 're actually removing that asset from the banking system and putting it on the books in or putting on the books of the central bank outside of the market's ability to as Mr. Kessler is pointing out, reuse, repledge, and rehypothecate so Quantitative easing, in effect, reduces the uh, ability of banking system to repledge and which actually slows down the multiplication effect, right? Because if there's, there's fewer treasuries, especially the best treasuries, which are treasury bills, if the Fed is locking those away from the market, you would expect that the, the entire liquidity system and repo on the collateral side to be constrained by quantitative easing, not eased by it as it's supposed to do according to its name. So quantitative easing is, in fact, potentially, uh, and I think it's pretty well established these days. I mean, it was a contentious debate for a long time, but I think nowadays even authorities will will tell you that, yeah, we do. We take collateral out of the system, and that that presents its own problems. And what they'll say in their defense is that, well, we've opened that collateral. We've taken out our balance sheet back up through the in the the United States and the Federal Reserve, the reverse repo, which is essentially renting collateral back in the system. And then Europe, I think it's called the EA or the EAP, whatever. There's an acronym for it. Essentially the same thing where banks can show up at the federal, at the uh, central bank level and say, I want to rent collateral from you. But that's not the same thing as, you know, the collateral system itself, the dynamic marketplace supplying and redistributing and repledging collateral organically. And so even if the Fed does say, well, we can, some of that, Some of the collateral we take in we'll, we'll let it back into the marketplace through the reverse repo program. yeah, that is true, but it was a seen time again, it's not a perfect substitute for you know when we see these safe asset shortages
1: materialize. Jeff, we've been talking about the United States specifically here when we're talking about uh, bills being stripped, but it occurred to me as you mentioned Europe, have you heard about anything similar happening in Britain? in Europe, in Japan, where those central banks strip the financial system of the shortest term paper or on the run securities. Have you heard anything along those lines from those jurisdictions? Heard as in, you know, seeing it in the bill
2: prices or the short term debt price? Yeah, the the, the prices of European sovereign debt, especially the highest quality stuff, you know, German, uh, France and uh, Netherlands in particular, Where are they? Their their prices of those debts are even higher. One reason why is because, you know, quantitative easing in Europe has been even more extreme in some cases and has stripped a lot of the collateral out of the system. In fact, again, what we're looking at in a negative yield situation is because of the repo demand, because of the repo market mechanics, it's a liquidity premium. Banks are saying we have huge utilities for these instruments such that we're willing to pay a, a ridiculous price that the yield on the instrument, from an investment perspective, is negative. That's a liquidity indication that says these these things are valuable for other reasons beyond investments. So back to your your point, Emil. That's in Europe. That's all we see. We see that uh, government bonds and safe assets are such a massive premium. You can't even consider them investments.
1: They're something else entirely. There hasn't been a central bank that you've heard of that has said, "Well." We're going to stop buying bills. We're just going to focus on the longest term maturities, or we're only going to focus on buying off the run securities. No one has said that. Everyone's just buying securities willy nilly without any consideration to the collateral system.
2: Yeah, because the main element of the uh, central bank model remains in effect, that they believe that everything runs through bank reserves. Now they understand there's complications, but I think at the current point, They don't believe those complications are all that much of a a problem. As as, you know, we we talked about before in Europe, I forget who it was. The particular ECB official gave you that speech in November where she said, yeah, you know, quantitative easing takes collateral out of of the system. But by God, we allow it back in through our our securities lending uh, uh, programs as well as, you know what? We've seen the securities lending businesses and private banks tick up too, as if that was a good thing. So yeah, they see that you know the collateral is it's it's, it's something else. It's it, it's maybe a nuisance to them because for them, you know, everything runs runs through bank reserves. We raise the level of bank reserves. That's what monetary policy is, and we'll kind of you know we'll investigate any fallout fallout that shows up along the way. When it's you know that's exactly backwards. They should have the repo market and collateral on the the front burner agenda, and that bank reserve stuff
1: really doesn't rate much at all. Two more questions. Let's go back to the Kessler article. I'm going to read two more quotes. Then the last one we'll just, you know, summarize and wrap it up. So the first one, here it is, reading along. To fund the CARES Act, the Treasury Department had issued close to $2 trillion in debt. Quote, this is you speaking Noja. When the government auctioned off more T-bills, Mr. Snyder tells me, with amazement in his voice, by accident... They provided exactly what the market absolutely needed. Mr. Kessler draws the reader's attention to your tone. Why were you amazed? Because, you know, first of all, that
2: was the big problem. And second of all, the U S treasury department had no idea it was the big problem. It was again, what we keep talking about is this darkness, the shadow over whatever we shouldn't have to be guessing about all of this stuff. And you know, For not for nothing, authorities shouldn't have to be doing things by accident. They shouldn't back their way into a solution, uh, uh, you know, not on purpose, unintentionally. That's really what happened. A lot of the safe asset shortage, the collateral shortage, in uh, especially uh, March and April. That's why you know the credit market sell-off extended into April because it wasn't until April when the Treasury bill auction process started really ramping up. And so the Treasury Department just said, "Look, we got to you know we got to fund the CARES Act." We don't care about repo because it's not really on our our radar. It's not a part of our mandate. We just got to fund the deficit and the deficit's exploding. And the way we do that traditionally is through the issuance of bills. That's why it's always been done. And so it was standard debt management practice that actually met what was this repo shortage, this repo collateral shortage in T-bills that the Fed had created. So the Treasury Department was fixing a partially fixing one problem that the Fed had made even worse. And it's just, it's amazing that when you put this together, it's like the Keystone cops, right? You know, they, they run around and, and create no. such a mess, but at the end of the day, they end up catching the crooks. Not by, you know, good police work or, or you know, uh, intentional program and design or well-executed plans. It's its just, it's a huge mess. And again, going back to, to, to Andy's particular point here is why, why is this such a, a mess? Why do we have to hope that the governments get this right by accident? And it's just, It's a confounding thing. It's it's really when you stop and think about it, it's it's a really shocking part of
1: all of this. I'm going to read Jeff's, uh, not yours. I'm going to read Kessler's conclusion right now. And then, Jeff, I'm going to ask you for any final thoughts about the article. Uh, Anonymous sources tell me that uh, Jeff's host is very handsome. Okay, quote, to resolve the instability problem, the Fed needs to end QE, stop gobbling up treasuries. The good collateral, the global economy, needs to function. To resolve the instability problem, the Fed needs to end QE. Did I repeat that? Yes, I, oh, here we go. The Fed is depriving the rest of the system the oxygen it needs to grow. Global credit is, Mr. Snyder tells me, a fragile system that doesn't need much of a trigger to go backward. Here's the last sentence. The least the Fed can do is get out of the way and QE now, very powerful.
2: Yeah, and I think that's, you know, it, it, it wraps all of the stuff in, into one thing. Number one, the myths about QE being effective and money printing and all that. I think he, you know, he quite, you know, in, in not a lot of space, eloquently puts it together to say, look, we think this is money printing, but you know, in practice, in, even in theory, it isn't. In fact, it's probably more harmful than it is positive. So it's not even easing, set aside the fact it's not quantitative, right? If you've got to do it four times, you haven't done it, you haven't done it quantitatively. And so what we're saying and what we're, we're starting to move toward the situation where more and more people are asking the right questions and coming to the right conclusions, which is, what does the central bank actually do? What do these guys really do? And it gets back to what we just said, you know, why has, why is nobody really taking a serious look at the repo market? It really is nothing more than well. It's if we take a serious look at the repo market as a central bank, we're putting ourselves out of business.
1: Jeff, very important. We always talk about the bond market, and that's where we're going to turn to next in part two of episode forty-two. The bond market is perhaps signaling that maybe it disagrees with you, or is that not the case? We're going to talk about it more. Inflation, deflation. Or something else. That question is the same question that you asked in your very first sentence uh, on a post that you made, Jeff, on January 4th at Alhambra Partners. And I guess, is it a question of semantics, inflation, inflation or something else?
2: What were you getting at? Yeah. And that's, I think we need to be clear on our terms, right? Because an inflationary environment, what does that actually mean? A reflationary environment, what does that actually mean? And if it's not inflationary or reflationary, then what's left, right? And so let's, let's start with an inflationary environment. And I think a lot of people think of inflationary environment as well, consumer prices rise or even accelerate. And that's, you know, that's only the first step Not only does, you know, it's not about food prices rising or, you know, education and healthcare prices rising. An inflationary environment, first of all, is a broad-based increase in all consumer prices. Think back to the 1970s for people who are old enough to do that. Or even if you've read anything about the 1970s and the great inflation, it wasn't that food prices went up or something else went up. It was the price of everything goes up. And it goes up a lot. And what separates inflation from reflation really is It doesn't just go up a little bit here and then stop. It goes up and 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 it doesn't stop. It's a sustained broad-based increase in consumer prices that comes back to us and tells us that we have a monetary imbalance in the opposite direction of what we have now. The opposite direction being too much. There's too much going on. And so... An inflationary environment, like we hear a lot about the last couple of months, that's what it would mean. We would see a broad-based, sustained uh, trend in consumer prices, not for a couple of months, not for even a couple of years, but as a paradigm shift into something else.
1: And presumably, Jeff, it's not just all bad news. It would come along with rising real wages. Isn't that right? Rising, well, at least nominal wages. <laughs> nominal. <laughs> wages.
2: Yeah, nominal wages would go up, and as we would expect, employment levels to rise too. The problem in the '70s wasn't that you know uh, nominal activity was moving forward; is that prices, consumer price advances, were basically eating all of that up. So that workers, in particular, were basically at best standing still, even though your pay got bigger every year. It cost you more to live and 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 uh, maintain the same lifestyle. So. And, At the best, you were staying the same, even though you got paid a lot more. In a lot of cases, you end up suffering even worse because uh, in in certain places, the pay levels
1: and wage increases didn't keep up with the cost of living. Let's talk about present day. Uh, We can measure inflation in a number of ways, and everyone disagrees. Everyone's a critic. But we could turn to markets. We could turn to surveys. We could take polls. How much inflation do you think there will be in the future? You can ask markets. Uh, in index-linked bonds, inflation-protected securities. And you you were looking at them recently on, on January 4th, uh, and you saw that what? What? Inflation was rising, nominal rates were doing what, and what were real rates
2: doing? In tips market, the inflation break-even, which is the uh, tips, the real yield that the tips, uh, that the market prices in tips, compared to the same maturity U.S. Treasury nominal yield, that gives us a measure of what the market is expecting for the CPI to price out on average for the duration of that uh, instrument. So whatever maturity is, if it's a five-year TIPS instrument, the five-year inflation break-even is basically the market saying, what do we think the CPI is going to average over the next five years? And the inflation break-evens, which is a measure of inflation expectations related to the CPI, have gone up. And they've gone up significantly over the last couple of months. The five-year break even, the 10-year break even broke, both broke above 2% recently. And in fact, I think they're up even another 10 or 20 basis points over the couple of weeks since then, since I wrote the article. So what we're seeing is that inflation expectations are rising. And like copper, we talked about before in another podcast, You know, copper's at a multi, multi, multi-year high. We're seeing the same thing in inflation expectations in the tips market, Uh, at least the break-evens, which are also at a multi-year high, the highest since 2018. That's right. And
1: I've pulled up uh, a chart right now of the benchmark 10-year nominal U.S. Treasury security and the uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Security to calculate what the expected inflation would be, the real rates. And it's very interesting, Jeff. We see, yes, break-even rising for the first time in a long time after a central bank action, uh, nominal, not so much or not as much, right? The slope is not as sharp, meaning that the difference then is that real yields are falling and precipitously so, like recently, since November, it's gotten ugly. ugly. What does that mean?
2: So you have inflation break-evens, the inflation expectation at a multi-year high. At the same time, the real yield is at record lows, not multi-year lows, record lows. We've never seen real yields this low. And so it's not that, hey, we're going into an inflationary acceleration period. What the market is saying is, well, something's driving the CPI, but it's not the real economy that's doing it. It's not the inflationary environment that we'd expect that looks like the 1970s. In fact, I think the answer is exactly what we talked about before with copper, which is the supply side in crude oil. Because as we know very well, WTI, as it flows through gasoline prices, is what drives the CPI more than any single factor out there. And so what the market here is really kind of saying is that this economy isn't getting better. It's not getting inflationary, but oil prices are up. And compared to where they used to be, they're not actually up, they're there's, They're just down less than they were a couple uh, a couple months ago, but how that works through the CPI is that you know we get paid by percentage annual increases, and the percentage annual increase in oil is going to look pretty good from where it was a couple months ago, and so if we interpret that into economic terms, what it says is that the economy isn't getting better, and it's going to actually become more miserable as you have
1: to pay more at the pump. Speaking of paying at the pump, uh, Eric Townsend, Macro Voices. Art Berman, on January 7th. The whole show is about oil. So if any of our audience wanted to learn more about that particular market and where it's going, I recommend that show. Jeff, I'm going to ask you about the shorter end, the shorter term yields and what they're telling us. And let me do that first by showing you the nominal yield curve going back to 1991, 2001, 2001. January of twenty eleven and then just right now january of twenty twenty one so going back ten years, four times it's amazing it's amazing, and you can see it's just how much we've fallen uh unbelievable so and and, and you know what the interesting thing is jeff this this yield curve in January in each of those decades, we were heading into recession, we were in recession we were approaching a crisis, and you can just – so these are like not great uh, occurrences, great moments of economic history, but you can just see how much worse it's getting. If you have anything to offer about that, great. If yeah, I think
2: – I'm glad you brought this chart up, Camille, and I think it's a really good chart that you put together here because it's exactly what you said. You're comparing to awful times, mm-hmm. right? These are yield curves for U.S. heading into recession. These are bad times. This is what a yield curve looks like when you say, oh, crap. These are all crap yield curves. And so here we have this inflationary explosion supposedly taking place when it's, it's, dare I say, perfectly Japanese. I mean that, you know, again, getting back to that point, people like to dismiss the Japanese example. Here it is right for you. I mean, it's right in front of you. It's, 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 a priced out and it's, it's indicated in the yield curve, which basically says we have become Japan. Japan was not an outlier. They were just first. They, they they pioneered the wrong trail, and we've all followed along. Not just in terms of how it's resulted, but what what if, what the official sector and central banks and governments have done to try to offset these things, and they never lead to inflationary recovery because it's just it's not in the cards. It's not in the it's not in the curves, I should say. And this is a really good reflection of what is the bond market actually telling us here. And getting back to what we talked about before with inflation expectations, yes. Oil prices are up because supplies have been cut somewhere between 16 and 25 percent, depending on the location. And so that's not an economic uh, it's not it's not an economically positive increase in supply. At the same time that I think a lot of speculators are overvaluing the return of demand uh, in the post vaccine era. And it's not an inflationary it's not an inflationary environment in under the the uh, definitions that we presented before, which is broad based economic based sustained consumer price increases that's not what the bond market is showing you here. The bond market is basically saying oil prices are up, but the economy isn't
1: let's talk about the shorter term bills, and I think they're sending a similar message to what the long-term real yields are telling us. Maybe it's not as dramatic a decrease, but I perceive that they're falling a little bit. They're certainly not rising. Am I wrong? And is that a concern? Because these are, again, this is the most important form of collateral that you need for liquidity purposes. You would think that if things are getting better, if inflation is coming along and the economy is going to be moving forward, then you would see some lift as opposed to a scramble for or the lower term. risk, right? A lower risk
2: environment. If things are, re- are proceeding in towards even just a reflationary environment mm-hmm. where things are better, risk is, you know, risk is not so evident and close at hand, so immediate. If we were expend if we we're experiencing a reflationary environment, we would expect bill yields to be at least somewhat higher than they are, but what you see, not just billions, but in the short-term treasury notes, like the two-year, for example, we've seen that that rate fall. It's come back up a little bit over the last couple of days, but it's dropped considerably. And it got down to, you know, all the rest, of, it got down into mixed up with all the rest of the bills, which tells you there's, for all the stuff that's supposedly going on in the TIPS market and inflation break-evens, why aren't the short-term treasuries doing anything other than rally? Why aren't they Why aren't they uh, uh, reflecting the same things that inflation break evens are? And I think, as you pointed out, Emil, exactly right. Um, the bill, the short end of the yield curve is trading very much like longer real yields are in tips, which is that you know nothing really much has changed here. the the, the current, the short, at least in the short run or in the intermediate term prospects are not very good. Things are not really proceeding the way they're supposed to.
1: There's a lot of risk for me. Well, I hate to end it on such a down note, Jeff. Is there anything positive that you would like to uh, to bring up? The Bills making the playoffs, for example. (laughs) Not just making the playoffs,
2: but actually winning their division for the first time in 25 years and stomping on the Patriots while they did it. So, I mean, as a Bills fan, as a long-suffering Bills fan, that was an extremely satisfying experience. Hopefully that will continue and go further, but we'll see about that. And it goes to show you that anything can actually happen. (laughs) <laughs> so as, as we examine these marketplaces, yeah, maybe there's, there's a, in my mind, a very small possibility that we end up in a uh, Weimar Germany hyperinflationary collapse, but hey, you never know. Th- things can happen. I'm thinking that the
1: central banks can look to the bills and say, we've been going the wrong way for decades, just like that organization. But there is hope. You can turn around. You just got to put the right people in charge and it can happen. That's it. That's it. That that's our that's our story for this week. Absolutely.